Oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the tree. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, how great Thou art, how great Thou when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim. My God, how great Thou art! Sings my soul, my Savior God. How great Thou art! How great Thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior God. How great Thou art, 
how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god how great thou art how great thou art how great thou art how great thou My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ of Cornerstone, weak made strong, and the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of When darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. Christ shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless i stand before the throne christ alone Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Christ alone. 
cornerstone, the weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one you crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you the Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table Jesus By your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near Your enemy you've made your friend Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace Your mercy and your kindness know no end Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. Lover of Washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, 
now seated at your table, Jesus, Lord, thank you that your blood has washed away our sins, Father. Thank you that we who once who were once your enemies, Lord, are now seated at your table, Father, and we are known as your children, Lord, and there's nothing that can separate us from you, Father. We are in Christ, and our salvation is sealed, and it is held in your hands, Lord, and we thank you for that, Father. Thank you that it doesn't depend on the works that we do, Lord. Thank you it doesn't depend on our good behavior, because if it did, Father, we wouldn't be saved. Lord, I pray today, Lord, whatever stress or burdens anyone carries in here, Father, that they can just lay it down at your feet, Lord, and they can find rest in your name and hope in your name and life in your name, Father. I pray for Tommy as he delivers this message. Lord, speak through him and speak to us through your word and through Tommy. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. We have several passages of scripture this morning. We'll be starting in Genesis, then moving to Exodus, and finishing in Leviticus. So if you can turn to your device, in your Bible, or it's on the screen for you. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus 20, eight through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to your, the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Moving to Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for all the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be food. Thank you, worship team. 
and Steve and Courtney. And thank you for being here today. This was not uh, an easy day to get to the to the campus, was it? And when you got here, there was a little bit of flooding. So uh, it makes it even more special when it when it's a challenge to get here as God's people. And hopefully everyone leaves thankful that you came and that it was worth it. And I'm certainly, certainly blessed uh, to see God's people making an effort to, to meet together under the banner of Christ. That's the whole story of the Bible, really. God's people and God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And that's where history is going to take us ultimately when Christ returns. So uh, let's pray. I want to give you an update uh, on something that happened since last, week, since last week's message about sending servants. And then we'll dig into those texts together as we uh, try and finish out our, our series on Culture Check. So let's just pause for a minute and pray as we dry off, okay? Lord, thank you so much for this day. This is your day, Lord, and we want to honor you today. We want to stop, pause, slow down. We want to rest today. We want to reflect and remember that we were once slaves to sin and to Satan and even to ourselves, and that you and your mercy and power condescended. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, you sent your Son, Jesus who was delivered over for our sins so that we could be adopted, we could be children of God, we could be reconciled, forgiven, cleansed, justified, we could belong to you, we could be put right with God again and come back to your family and finally belong. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us and for continuing to rescue us when we fail and when we sin and when we need forgiveness. And thank you for the church, what a gift it is. And we're grateful for the time you've given us to talk about the culture of our churches, the unwritten rules about the way we do things around here. We want it to, to be the way you want us to do things. So help us to get back as we consider this today to the simplicity, Lord, of just the principle of Sabbathing, what it really means to have a life where rest is built in so that we can honor you and, and think about you and gaze upon your beauty and your glory. I pray for those at home that are watching Pray the signal remains strong, Lord, and that very soon, Lord, you uh, would make a way for them to come back and worship with us together in person, but that, that they wouldn't feel, Lord, inferior or second-class citizens because uh, they're taking their health serious, Lord, and are compromised right now. Just pray for the day when you would heal that sickness and when you would heal all the sicknesses, Lord. There's wildfires burning. I pray some of this rain will go to California. And put those fires out, Lord. And there's the fire of hate and conflict going on in our nation, political and social upheaval and unrest and distrust and suspicion. And people seem to be easily irritated and annoyed and short-tempered and just all the firestorms, not just in California, but on social media platforms. And it's just a really ugly time, Lord. Help us to stand out and be salt and light. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may not know who this young lady is, but I'm going to show you a picture of Caitlin Harrington. She has spent the last year and a half with us at Grace Life, and she has a gift of singing. And so she has been using her God-given talent of her voice to just enrich our time of worship together. And uh, little did I know until after the service yesterday, you know, I, I preached on sending servants, not being a culture of hoarding and holding on to all these precious gifts, especially people that God gives us, but 
but to hold on to them with open hands. Jesus said in John 12, unless a grain of seed falls to the ground and dies and sprouts, it remains alone. But if it falls and dies, it bears much fruit. And so she told me after the service, there was a group of people up here and, and they said, hey, would you come up and pray with Caitlin? And I said, sure, what's going on? And she said, well, I'm going to Kenya. Uh, and I said, oh, great, for a mission trip? And she said, yeah, it's for a mission trip, uh, but ultimately I want to move there permanently forever because there's a gospel work that's going on there and God has moved in my heart to be a part of it. It's called Nurturing Hope. And, and this is a place in Kenya that's just a, uh, a few miles uh, from one of the biggest slum cities. And there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on there. And one of the terrible things that happens is that children who are born are just thrown away, just literally discarded and left to die. And so there's, there's a lot of things going on at this ministry she's a part of. One of them is they're building a place where those babies can be raised up, and she really wants to be a part of that. So she's there. She sent us word this morning. She's on a 10-day trip to find a residence, place to stay. Um, there's a picture that she sent. So would you please pray for her? We're going to pause and pray for her in just a second. You can pray for her. Uh, one of the things you can do, there's the, the buildings they're, they're building to provide an education for 300 students uh, in the Kenya area there too. You can pray. You can donate. One of the easy ways you can support her is to shop. And she didn't ask me to do any of this, but I just thought, you know what? We're, our church, we want, we want to help and support when we're able. So uh, if God lays it on your heart that you would want to help support what she's doing over there, their website is nurturinghopeforthenations.com. There's an easy way to donate if you feel led to do that. Nurturinghopeforthenations.com in another way, and I guess a lot of 501c3s do this, is they have their own clothing uh, line that you can shop, and all the money goes toward that. So nurturing-hope.com myshopify.com. You can go there and do that as well. So I just wanted to mention that. That really moved me to hear that, you know what? I don't want her to leave and go to Kenya. I love hearing her sing. I love her being a part of our worship team, but we don't want to hoard, do we? We want to hold people with open hands and say, you know what? We'll send her there as best we can. Maybe it's just we pray for her. Maybe a few people want to help support her. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But would you please pray for Caitlin as she goes to do God's work? She's young. She's single, she's blonde-headed and blue-eyed, and that can pose a big risk in Kenya, honestly. That's a scary thing probably for her parents to think about, but she feels compelled to go. So let's pause and pray for her. Lord, thank you for Caitlin being willing to take up the gospel um, baton and go to Kenya because she feels like you're calling her there. Will you please protect her and keep her safe, help her to find lodging, help that work to remain pure. Lord, we know how easy it is for something that starts out really good for just greed and evil and corruption to come in, protect that organization. May they stay focused on the gospel and on rescuing human beings and not only feeding their stomachs, Lord, but I love that ministry because they make sure everyone hears the gospel. So be with her. Thank you for the work you're doing there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So today we're talking about a culture of Sabbath, and it's called Sabbath regularly, Sabbath regularly. And I'll start out by, by saying this, maybe to jar us a little bit, that something is wrong. Something is, is definitely wrong when you look around, especially right now, because we are seeing exhaustion. We are seeing exhaustion around the world, but specifically in the West and in America, that's unprecedented. And it's in every place. It's in the government. It's in the school. It's in the home. It's at the workplace. And it's in the church. 
People are exhausted. Now, this existed long before COVID-19 ever came. And even though that brought a forced shutdown for a lot of people, didn't it? I mean, people are working from home now, businesses closed, schools let out, and you would think, finally, we have time to rest. But people are even more exhausted. They're more wearied mentally, physically, spiritually. Maybe what COVID-19 introduced was fear, anxiety, suspicion now, the theories are going around. People are exhausted. In the church, too. We're not immune from that. Christians aren't immune from that. You know, whenever you're driving your car and one of those little lights comes on, uh, do you ignore it? Those little warning lights? I have a theory. I think those four are the ones we all pay attention to. Am I right? The generator light? Sam, that's not a good one to, to have on, is it? Cliff, I bet you get a lot of work from that one when people ignore it, don't you? <laughs> Yes, yes. That's a, and that's a good analogy for this sermon, really. Like, hey, your engine is hot. It's hotter than it's supposed to be. And unless you do something, it's going to blow out, blow up, burn out. So temperature light, that top left one, is. if you don't know, that's the generator light. That means something's desperately wrong in the heart of your engine. And your car is not smart enough to tell you what it is. But somebody is. They'll do a diagnostic for $199.99. <laughs> anyway. General light, the fuel light, and the battery light. If you ignore those long enough, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be parked. Your car is going to be parked. And we laugh, and we get that. We get it. There's a bunch of other lights that I even ignore. It's like, yeah, whatever. It's, I didn't know what it's talking about. But here's, here's a, a light. Here's a warning signal that we see in ourselves that I think God gave us that we ignore our slight. That we're tired all the time. Have you guys heard that? When you, I'm out and about a lot. And I can tell you this. More than anything else, when I ask people how they're doing, do you know what the answer is that I get? I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm busy. <laughs> and let me tell you something. Those two things are distant cousins. In fact, they're twins. I'm super busy. And I'm super tired. And sometimes they'll throw this in. And I just don't feel good. I'm super sick. Sick and tired, exhausted, wearied, and yet they keep going. They keep going. Crazy busy, super exhausted, distracted and preoccupied. Here's some warning lights. If you're distracted and you're preoccupied, you can't seem to bring yourself to focus. You're overworked. You're underrested. You're overcommitted. You're hurting people. You're fracturing relationships. That's the American way of life. It really is. But it doesn't have to be. It's one that we've accepted and one that we've tolerated. And I think God wants us, when we read the Bible and we see the way of Jesus in the New Testament, there's a better way. God has a better path for us. This does not have to be the cultural air that we all breathe right now. But you've got to fight against it. And I'll prove it to you. You know what we do when this is the warning light? You know what we do? This is what we do. Do you know that? Now, look, please. I hate legalism in all forms. I do. I hate it. I'm just stating the facts for you guys, okay? $53 billion a year industry, energy drinks. Energy, I, didn't, I did not know this. I have so much fun studying for these sermons. Do you know that Monster Drinks started out with one flavor, and they thought, you think people will buy this? I don't know. People are tired. Maybe they'll go for it. You know how many flavors they have of this Monster Drink now? 
You know, but you're scared to say it because you're going to get judged. 34 flavors. You know why? Because we want to make sure everybody that's exhausted can find one of these things that suits them. 34 flavors. Red Bull has 16 if, you don't, if you're not into Monster, okay? And then there's that five-hour energy. Man, that's got to be a lie from Satan. What happens after five hours? That's what I want to know. And then the Rockstar. Those are the four major energy drink labels. $53 billion a year with a 7.2% increase every year. They just assume and expect we're going to... It's almost like a drug. Like We're going to hook more people. Why? Because nobody's changing their pace. Nobody is trying to eliminate hurry and exhaustion, burning the midnight oil, speeding everywhere they go, texting while driving because we're so far behind and we're exhausted. But we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to drink more coffee and buy more energy drinks because that's the American way of life. That's the cultural air that we breathe. But it does not have to be that way. There's nothing wrong with an extra cup of coffee or an energy drink every now and then, by the way. I don't think. I had a few myself. <clears throat> if you want to know more about what's in those, <laughs> read that label. It's pretty scary. There's actually a lot of signs. This is a Christian doctor that wrote a book called Margin. And he talks about, this book was fast. I reread it this week. This is a fascinating book. He said, rarely a day goes by that I don't pick up some broken pieces of humanity and attempt to put them back together again. Unfortunately, not all broken pieces are easily repaired. And compounding these wounds, many patients show signs of a new disease, marginless living. You know what a margin is, don't you? It's that extra room you have on the side. I love it in Bibles because you can take notes. I don't like anything that doesn't have margins because I'm a note taker and I underline and I highlight. I love margins. Americans don't have many margins when it comes to their life. He says, how often do I see the effects of marginless living? About every 15 minutes into my office on a regular basis comes a steady parade of exhausted, hurting people. The reason these patients come to me, however, is not to discuss their lack of margin. They don't even know what margin is. Instead, they come because of pain. Most don't realize that pain and the absence of margin are related. The disease of marginless living is insidious, widespread, and virulent. It's insidious. It's like a, it's gradual. It doesn't just flag you down in the middle of the road and say, hey, you want to live with no margins? No, it just gradually creeps up on you. You keep adding things to your life, but you never take anything away. And you end up in a doctor's office saying, I don't know what's, I don't quite know what's wrong with me, but I hurt everywhere. I'm not sleeping. This doctor would tell you, I can help you. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy and it's going to be awkward and humiliating, but you got to ruthlessly eliminate, eliminate hurry from your life. So, um, there's a hurry sickness in the West and especially in America. We're super busy, overworked, overcommitted, and underrested. Healthy, product, productive, well-rested, those are not part of our vocabulary. But the good news is they're part of God's vocabulary, and He has a better way of living for us. So, if you're following along, uh, here's point number one. Here's point number one. Are you ready? It's really easy. God knows how life works best. Did you guys know that? <laughs> Of course you did. God knows how life works best, how your life works best, and how my life works best. And that's why he gave us something called laws. He gave us laws. And I know that sometimes we get mixed reviews about what the function of those laws are and how we're to view them, especially on this side of the cross, since we're New Testament Christians. 
But if we just clear all the clutter away and just look at them for a second, God's laws are intended to make you flourish. Did you know that? God did not give you commandments to be mean to you, or as my friend Jeff Eckert says, to jam up your life and cram up your life. God gave you laws to free you, not to enslave you, to empower you, really, to liberate you, to help you live life the way God intended it. I love Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible, and she summarizes the Ten Commandments when it gets to that section in the Old Testament. She said, these laws are the way that life works best. This is how life works best. Just look at the Ten Commandments, and those are the way that, that God intends for life to work best, for you to be a human being. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. If you want to know how to be a human being, look at the Ten Commandments. James 1.25 call, calls God's law uh, the perfect law of liberty. Don't you love that? Not the perfect law of enslaving you. The perfect law of liberty. Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and he said this, God has no design upon us but to make us happy. That's all God wants for you, is for you to be happy and holy. And those two things aren't enemies. So he gave us a law. And I think we, we still forget. We're like, what? No, no, the law makes life hard. But does it, though? I mean, think of this for a minute. Let's just take a few commandments. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't cheat with somebody else's spouse. Do you think that those things make life easier? I lived in L.A., and I lived about 15 to 20 minutes from Skid Row in L.A. That's a famous part where like 40,000 homeless people live and drug addicts, and the seminary always had a ministry to go out there and help those people. And most of those people that you would talk to, not many of them didn't have parents, but a lot of them did. And they would talk to you about, I should, I should. This sounds crazy to you, but they would say, I should have listened to my parents. <laughs> That's a law, you know. You know the Bible says that the fit, it's the fifth commandment, right? Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Do you know, children, let me talk to you for a minute. Do you know that one of the only commandments with a promise is the fifth commandment? And it says, honor your father and mother so that you will live long in the land. You know, people that live on skid row and are stationed in death row in a prison, you know, the one rule that a lot of them would agree they did not follow, they didn't listen to their mom and dad. I can't help but think of Samson in the Old Testament. His relationship, he said, I want this Philistine woman. His parents said, son, can you not get this a nice Jewish girl? And he said, I want her. Go get her. She pleases me. And within just a few, a few months, Samson was grinding a millstone to entertain God's enemies. And he had his eyes poked out. And eventually he died. And one like catastrophe. He killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his life, which was the opposite purpose that God had for him. That's just one illustration of many. It's when you go to the, the book of Proverbs and you read over and over, uh, nafal, that word is full. The fool does this. The fool does that. That's not necessarily an intellectual comment about this person has a, a low IQ. It's meaning this per, it's a moral judgment saying this person is foolish because they have taken God's instruction manual and thrown it away. Can you imagine doing that with a high-tech piece of equipment? Saying, you know what? I probably know how this thing works better than the engineer who designed it. So I'm just going to kind of wing it here. You fool. You idiot. You're going to break it and you're going to break the people that it was intended to help. And that's the same thing we do with our life and with our bodies. God knows how life works best. 
And his commandments are not meant to make life miserable. They're intended to help us flourish. Let me, let me ask you a question for a minute. If you were the ruler of a kingdom, you're, you're the king, and you can do whatever you want, and you can come up with just 10 rules, only 10, to make your kingdom the best kingdom in the world and to help your people be the healthiest, the happiest, to make them serve you better and one another better, what laws would you come up with? I mean, I get it. Don't murder. That's a, I mean, with abortion, it's not, in America, you would think, well, that went out the window, didn't it? But don't murder. This kingdom would probably be a lot better place if we don't kill each other, right? And let's not steal from each other. That's not cool. And, and how about not lying to each other? Let's just keep it honest. But then you get in some of the other ones, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's possessions. Ah, now you're meddling. Why would the king care about what goes on up here? Because God knows what coveting and envy and jealousy lead to. It will like tear you into a million pieces. Now here's, here's a big question for today's sermon. Do you think it would help your kingdom say, you know what, let's set aside one day out of every week. Let's set aside one whole day and nobody works. But king, you're going to lose money. Well, 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 maybe, but that's going to be my law for my kingdom. I think everybody will be better off if we do that. Would you come up with a rule like that? Don't you scratch your head when you look at God's laws? Do you believe that observing a Sabbath rest, and, and this is not a sermon per se on the Sabbath commandment. That could be a whole series. I want to take it as a, as a principle. It's built in. You heard those verses that were read. It's built into creation as a pattern. It's built into God's law as a commandment. And it's even built into farming cycles in the promised land. You're supposed to give the land a rest every seven years. Don't plant it or harvest it or reap it. Leave it alone. Let it rest. The soil will replenish itself and nourish itself, and you'll get a better harvest next year. So would you come up with a law like that to make life better? God did. And you know what his people did? They ignored it. They slighted it. They broke it because they thought they knew better than God did. And I think as a principle, we do the same thing. That's why we're so overworked. We have slighted the principle that God has built into His creation, into His law, and even into the Lord's day. Rest is like an intrusion to us. It interrupts us. We don't have time for that. we got to be busy. we got to produce. And there's this culture of performance. It's definitely in America today, and it's, it's found its way in the church. People are overworked, overscheduled, overcommitted. And the Lord's day has just become another busy day for everybody. I see that. I feel that. And I want to fight against that with everything I have at this church. I really do. That's the reason we have built in rhythms in this church where if you're going to volunteer and serve in a way that takes you out of this worship service, I know it may be different to maybe greet and then you can come in here. But even that, we have cycles where you work two weeks on and you get four weeks off. Now, i got to be honest with you. As a leader, that's hard. That's hard to pull off because we're always short, but the principle stands. It will be better for everybody if we do that, and I think that's pleasing to God because we're not just producers. We're not just human doings. You know, we're human beings. We need to just sit still and remind ourselves, you know what? We need to recharge. Like that battery light that was flashing or the fuel light. We need to refuel. We need to recharge. We need to let our generator get fix itself, right? <laughs> We need to rest and know that we're not God. He is. That's why I've said this before. Every single night, God has even built a reminder into us every day because we're so stubborn. 
Every day of your life, you have to curl up in a fetal position and suck your thumb for eight hours. You know why? Because God wants to remind you, you're not God. We need to confess what John the Baptist did. I am not the Christ. <laughs> they said, are you the one? He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. We're not God. We have to sleep. And I hear the craziest. I've heard some of the stupidest justifications for people overworking. Well, you know, the devil never takes a day off. Well, I didn't know he was our role model. <laughs> God rested on the seventh day and he wasn't even tired. Why did he do that for us? I've heard, well, I'd rather rust out than burn out. Well, is there a third option? <laughs> How about we work and rest the way God wants us to, and then we last? Have you heard some of those crazy justifications? It's because we're so performance-based, man. Our identity is so based and so tethered to what we produce and what we do. When I went to seminary, it was so confusing to me, and I'm not dogging my seminary. If, if all my props were here, they would laugh and say, you're right. The orientation week we had, they regaled us with stories of students who overworked and burned the midnight oil and came as a newlywed and ran their wife off because all they did was hit the books and study. I mean, we, they scared us. At the end of the first day, we were scared. They told us stories of, you know, a student that came home and all his books were on the bed and his wife left the note, said, you love these more than me, so why don't you marry them? And they were like, now, gentlemen, you got to be careful. And then at the same time, they start telling us, now, some of you were only get like four or five hours of sleep a night. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> and they would say, you know, uh, sleep deprivation is not a spiritual gift. But then they would tell you, but you're going to have to lose a lot of sleep, you know. And for some of those knuckleheads that went to seminary that were, they were at the time they were single and they didn't have a family, they didn't have a job and, and they would come to class and just brag like, I got a tight two hours last night, brother. How about you? And it's like, dude, what are, is this a contest? No, I didn't get my homework done, but I did the best I could. I got a job. I got a family. Anyway, I'm chasing a rabbit here. Point number one is that God knows how life works best. And you know, one of the first things we read about working and producing in the Bible, is that you should regularly stop doing it. Every week, stop doing it. To rest, to refresh, to remember, to reflect, and to worship God. Every week. And you don't have to wait till the seventh day either. You should be like, there should be like uh, points of this throughout your day where you just pause and reflect. Reflect on, I am an image-bearing creature. I have the privilege of representing what my creator is like to the world. And I'm not going to run around like a chicken with his head cut off, hurrying and rushing. It's so interesting to me. If you look at the life of Christ, he had three years. He died when he was 33, and he was never rushed. He refused to rush. They came to him early in the morning looking for him. Jesus, Jesus, do you not know they're all waiting for you? We got more miracles to do. These people are waiting. And he says, no, no. I must go to the next town and preach the gospel. For this reason, I was sent. If you study the New Testament and read all the times that Jesus said no, it'll blow, blow your wig. He said no a lot of times. Why? That wasn't for me. I think so often we are overworked and overcommitted and exhausted and, and, are, and afraid. Not afraid. We're afraid. Like, you know, your shoestrings, those little plastic uh, dilly hickeys, when they come off, you can't. You ever do that? It's like, I can't do it. I feel like that sometimes. I'm afraid at the ends. I can't. I can't do it. Your gears are stripped, you're gutted, you're hollowed. I lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? Somebody help me. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Whew. That wasn't in my notes. Yeah. We won't, we won't say no. Jesus said no so often. He said, no, I got to go to the next. I think so often we're afraid and our gears are stripped because we're doing things that we think are for the kingdom that God never asked us to do. Now, that'll blow your mind hearing you, a preacher tell you that. And I know that's a dangerous thing to say because you're like, well, man, I just volunteered for this at the church and signed up. Well, hang on. <laughs> Not, I'm, just, I'm just saying, are we doing things that God never asked us to do? Not just here, out there at work, at our, in our homes, the rhythms and the patterns of our life? Are we taking ourselves out of the rhythms of discipleship with our children and with church? I'm reading a lot of crazy predictions from people that I'm just going to reject in the name of Christ, that, you know, 20 to 30% of people aren't going to come back to church even after the COVID thing hits. I'm not going to believe that. The, the, I'm not going to believe that a true Christian is going to be okay with that. Because they're just so busy and they've become so accustomed to, well, it'll be online or we can watch it later. And, you know, it's hard to get to church. We need this. We need this as often as often. We need it every seventh day for sure. We need to stop what we're doing and hang our, our nail apron up or whatever it is that we clock in. We need to clock in here and say, God, I'm yours for a day. If it didn't get done in six days, as my family used to tell me, a seventh day ain't going to help. Right? My dad, when I was 10 years old, Marshall, you'll like this. My dad gave me a motorcycle. It was a little XR80 Honda. Man, I'll cry talk, talking about this because my dad had to work so hard to, to buy that for his kids. And I remember I had to get on a chair to get on it, you know. But I could ride the thing. And my dad said, I'll never forget, he said this. He said, Tim, Tommy, Tony, my sister wasn't really that interested in it. He said, you guys can ride this fast or you can make it last. And you say, what'd you do? None of your business. <laughs> I did what any 10-year-old kid did. I, I drove that thing until it fell apart. And it's almost like a Sabbath day as God's, God's stooping down to us and saying, look, I gave you this body. I gave you this life. I'm, I've entrusted all these things to you. Here's the best way for you to use it so it doesn't fall apart. That's rule number one. God, or point number one, God knows how life works best. Even the farming cycles. You know, I grew up on a farm and we had what was called fallow ground or layout ground. And it was even against the law for you to over farm certain regions of dirt. And it, but even some farmers, they'd try to find a way around it. It just would bother them so badly to know I could be planting cotton on those 40 acres back there. It goes against our grain to rest. It go, it's it's un-American. <laughs> Gotta say that. God forbid, for some people, it seems unchristian. God wants us to work, 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 work. Well, then go read the New Testament. Jesus in Mark chapter 6, after he sent out the 70 apostles and they came back and they were telling him all the things that they had done in his name. And about that time, John the Baptist was beheaded and they had heard about it. And Jesus had heard about it. I mean, he was God. He knew already. And that was his cousin, by the way. And there's this little parenthetical brief notation there in the text and it says and they were telling him all the things they had done and Jesus took them away to a desolate place to be alone with him for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat that's Jesus I mean what business model would that line up with 
The CEO says, hey, everybody, hey, hey, it's been a busy time. We got a lot of work to do. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into the wilderness and we're going to take a break and we're going to eat. <laughs> That's just un-American to people. We got to produce, produce, produce. Hurry, busy. I find myself all the time doing with this with my kids. And I don't know why. It's probably because I'm just so impatient and I've got six kids and I would rather get it done quick. I use the word hurry. That's probably if you had an invisible recorder around my neck, all that my kids probably hate that word. Hurry up. Come on. Hurry up. My toddler. Come on. Let's go. Come on. It's like, what's the, what's the hurry? Slow down. But that's honestly become my life. Hurry up. Hurry up. Let's go. I can't wait to be a grandpa. And I'm sure Sarah, a grandma, because you know what? You just don't. I read that. What's the, what's a grandma? It's the only lady in the world who, when she has her grandkids, never says hurry up. You don't have to wait till you're a grandparent. God built it right in. He hardwired it into creation, into the law, into the land. I mean, we're made from the dirt. If <laughs> it needs a break every seven years. So that's point one. <clears throat> a little, went a little over on that point. Point one, God knows how life works best. So you ignore his instructional instruction manual to your own peril, and you can really jam up whatever culture you're a part of. If you're all about performance, busy, hurry, rush, you got to put out produce. You're going to bring that cultural culture of performance and busyness into your job, your family, your home, your church. And I want to fight against that here. I do not want that to be a part of our culture. I want us to work hard, but I want us to rest hard too. If there's such a thing. I read a story this week about Winston Churchill in the middle of, oh, Mark Mayling would kill me if he were here. I get it wrong. It's war. Germany is a World War One. Help me out. Okay, I'm sorry, guys. It's been one of those weeks when I've been rushed and hurried. <laughs> but even when bombs were dropping around, Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister and the leader that really led London to victory with the Allied forces, every day, not trying to gross you out, he took a nap. I mean, he didn't just lay on the floor. He took his clothes off and crawled into bed and took like a two-hour nap every single day. And, and people said it inspired confidence in the people around him. Why? It's like, dude, bombs are dropping in London. There's another air raid, Winston. And he goes, yeah, I know. I'll be, I'll be back in two hours. There's a lot of work to do, and I can't be exhausted today. His, his driver said he ruthlessly protected that rule in his life. And it inspired, like, even President Eisenhower. He saw it. <laughs> Kennedy heard about that later, and he did it. But for the most part, you're, listen, you're not going to be hailed as a hero to do stuff like that. That is countercultural. Nobody's going to applaud you for taking a day off work to go and be with your family. People are going to be annoyed by it because you're putting more work on them. I talked to Patty Parks. I emailed her early in the morning. I said, hey, remind me what you were telling me about the European countries and vacation. She said, yeah, they're flabbergasted that Americans get 10 days of paid vacation a year, and most, most Americans don't even take all their vacation days. Did you know that? Now, I wrote it down, and I'm so lost in my notes, I'll never find it. But she told me it was something like four weeks as a starting point. 22 days. How many, how many weeks is that? 22 days of vacation in Europe if you get hired. Does that make you want to move there? Starting salary, 22 days of paid vacation, man. And 14, I think, holidays. People are blown away that Americans 
don't take vacations. They don't rest. It's nuts. I'm telling you, it's insane what our culture has become. And I think it displeases God because we're telling him this all rests on our shoulders, you know. God has, God has to be humored by that. And I think even Christians fall into this. One of my favorite preachers was Robert Murray McShane. And he died when he was 28 years old. He graduated college at 14. He was the uh, lead pastor of a Scottish Presbyterian church of a thousand people. But he went here and there and everywhere. And he ran himself so thin. He found himself on his deathbed at 28. And he turned to his best friend and he said these words. He said, the Lord has given me a message and he has given me a horse to ride to deliver it. I've killed the Lord's horse and now who will deliver his message? And by horse, he meant himself, his body. He didn't take care of himself. Are we killing the Lord's horse? <laughs> you ever feel like that? If you can ask yourself this question and it scares you to answer it, like, is, am I living a sustainable life? Is this, is this really what I want my life to look like? This rushed, this hurried, this exhausted, this tired. I'm living on Tylenol and ibuprofen all the time in Advil because of this pain. I'm, I'm, I'm burning midnight oil. I'm sleeping four or five hours and thinking that's going to be okay. John Owen was one of the greatest theologians at Oxford. And his biographer said when he was a very young student of theology, he would limit himself to four hours of sleep every night so he could write more theology. And when he died at a relatively young age, he looked back on that and said it was the stupidest thing he ever did. We think we're doing more for God, we're doing less. We're killing the horse. And we're introducing something into a culture that's not good. It's not good. It's, it, if we're bearing God's image and we're showing the world what God is like, and we're constantly rushed and behind and overcommitted and overburdened. It makes us easily irritated and anxious. And we're fracturing relationships and doing things last minute. And your procrastination becomes somebody else's emergency. We're telling lies about what God is like. And there's a better way. And that's point two. Have I gotten to point two yet? <laughs> when we ignore God's pattern for living and slight His commandments, we break down and we hurt others. And we've already talked about that quite a bit. We can self-destruct in a million ways, and one of them is just, just overworking, overcommitting ourselves. Charles Cowan was a Japanese missionary, and he said, many are slowly succumbing to the strain of life because they have forgotten how to rest. Refusing to rest is a serious sin. And hurry will sabotage your spiritual development. Do you know that? When it's time for you to get still and get quiet and maybe get out the Bible and read it or pray, do you find it increasingly difficult to just hit the stop button? That's, a, that's one of those warning lights. It's like, man, you got you to rethink your spiritual formation, if you want to call it that, your spiritual development. You've got to ruthlessly eliminate the hurry from your life or your spiritual development is going to be hijacked. And God is going to be pushed more and more and more to the margin. It's going to happen. It'll happen. And it will be like the one man said. It'll be subtle and it'll be violent. <laughs> the consequences. So, you heard all those scriptures read about 
God instituting a Sabbath and saying, six days you shall work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. That word Sabbath, it means to cease, to stop, translated to rest in some places. It's translated to celebrate a couple of places in the Old Testament. I like that. Stop, rest, cease, celebrate. It even says when God stopped on the seventh day, he looked at everything that he had made and he delighted in it. He enjoyed it. That's what Sabbath means. Stop and delight in God, your creator. Enjoy his bounty. Enjoy his creation. Don't work on this day. You don't have to exercise dominion on this day. You just have to, to enjoy the one who has dominion. That's what Sabbath is all about. So that would have been hardwired into the religious culture and into the indigenous culture of a Jew. Again, everywhere they looked, they had reminders of resting. See, God knew not only it's so important, but that we're so prone to forget it and profane it that he hardwired it into the culture of the Jews. And what did they do? Do you guys know the history of idolatry and the Jews? You know what they did? They let all the cultures around them set their religious perspective and their, uh, and their rhythms. All the false pagan cultures around them, they adopted their way of living and their way of worshiping, and they profaned the Sabbath. And it grieved God, and it angered God. That was, one of the, that was one of the idolatries he calls them out on over and over and over in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And it ultimately led to them rejecting and ignoring the Sabbath laws. It ultimately led to them being banished and deported to Assyria and then later to Babylon. God said, oh, you like their way of living so much? Then why don't you go and be a part of it? And they lost their culture. They lost their language. They lost their temple. Many of them lost their life. And so when God finally brought them back, now this is important for you to understand this. When God finally, after 70 years, brought his people out of Babylonian captivity, and then fast forward hundreds of years to the New Testament, what one law do you think they're going to be super, super protective over? Which one? Sabbath law. And this is how, this is how legalism always gets started. It gets started by people who have a, a, a very genuine heart. And they say, this is such an important law, and it's such a good law. We have to do everything we can to protect it and not repeat what we did in the past. And the Pharisees, man, they were, they were conservative uh, biblical scholars in their day. They were like the ones that didn't go watch rated R movies, and I know they get a bad rap sometimes, but they started out good. That's how, all, that's how Satan works. But God intended for the Sabbath day to be a day of rest to unburden people, to liberate them and free them. But in Jesus' day, because the Pharisees had so added layers of complexity and tradition to it, it became performance again. It became all about this burden. In fact, let me, let me read this to you. This is, this is, they had defined, this is how they reasoned. The seventh day is a holy day. It's set apart to God, and we're not supposed to work. And then they asked the question, well, what exactly is work? Is walking work? Is jogging work? If you tie a knot, is that work? That's how they started out. And so they define working so narrowly that at the, at the end of their quest to be holy and honor the Sabbath, guess what? What was intended to be a day of rest and reflection and worship, a day to help God's people flourish, became a tremendous burden and test of performance. In fact, the Pharisees invented more rules that surround Sabbath keeping than any other commandment. And you'll be shocked a little bit when I read this. For example, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 steps or half a mile on the Sabbath. 
because walking more than half a mile was considered traveling. And traveling was work. So count those steps. You want to enjoy, you want to enjoy a nice walk through the park? Go ahead and do that. Ah, count your steps though. Have fun, enjoy, but count your steps. 1,999, no more. <laughs> you couldn't tie your shoes on the Sabbath because tying and untying a knot on your sandals was strictly forbidden. Flip-flops, anyone? <laughs> you couldn't even defend yourself on the Sabbath because defending yourself was work. They felt so strongly about violating that commandment that they would refuse, the really, really uh, spiritual ones would refuse to defend themselves if they were attacked. So guess when the, Jew, the enemies of the Jews planned their attacks when they found out about that? The Pharisees had this long list of rules and regulations. It got so ridiculous that you even had to be careful where you spit on the Sabbath because if you spit on a rock, that was okay. But if you spit in the sand, that would be considered making mortar and cement, which was work. You know what I love about Jesus? Do you remember when he healed a blind man on the Sabbath, what he did? He spit. Jesus was a rebel in some, in some ways, okay? Where did he spit? Do you remember? In the sand, and what did he make? Mud. I just love that. Jesus is like, you guys don't even have a clue what the Sabbath is, do you? And he's like mixing mortar <laughs> to put in this guy's eyes. He was doing that because he loved them to show them, this is ridiculous what this is to become. It was never supposed to be this. So, and I'm not here to debate, you know, there's, there's so many different uh, strands of theology about, okay, well, what exactly are we, are we supposed to be keeping Old Testament Sabbath where you don't walk? Paul said this in Romans chapter 14. He said, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. So that has led a lot of theologians to believe that Christ ultimately fulfilled Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He is our final rest, right? So we don't have to be concerned with, well, can I watch football on Sunday? Can I take a walk? I think as a what I'm, what I'm trying to do today is to bring us back to see this is so hardwired into creation, into law, and, and into the property of, of uh, the promised land that God just wants to get our, our attention and tell us, look, you are human beings, not human doings. You have weaknesses. You have limitations. You're finite. And you need to take serious what I have said about Sabbathing. You need to set aside at least one day out of the week where you can rest. And you need to simplify your life and stop overworking. Stop being so performance-driven. Remember your identity. You belong to me. You're a child of the king. That's more important to God than if we're working 60 to 70 hours a week. That's what he's saying. Busyness is like a sin. Unless you kill it, it will kill you. So here's point number three, okay? Point number one was God now knows how life works best. Point number two was when you violate that law and that principle, it will eventually break you. I mean, breaking God's laws, you break them and you grieve his heart, but it's kind of like breaking gravity. You're going to get broken, <laughs> right? God knew what he was doing when he wrote those laws. So point number three is uh, join the rebellion and just simplify your life. Join the rebellion and simplify your life ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and clutter and simplify. And I know that may sound 
even maybe liberal to some people. Like, what? That's the. I think Jesus is happy when we when we take time to eliminate the things that so clutter our life and eclipse Him. I'm serious. You know, when Jesus was talking to anxious people, you know what He told them to do? Consider creation. It's almost as if God says, one of the best things you can do is stop what you're doing and go outside and take a walk with me and spend some time in creation and simplify your life and spend some time in quietness and solitude and put your phone down and get off the internet. <laughs> I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you that I don't have rules for you on what, what's a good amount of time for you to spend, but if you don't ask yourself that question and ask God to help you, I think you're making a foolish mistake. And we're certainly trying to do that at this church. In fact, I'm talking to our elders right now. You know, we're, we're coming up on our seventh year, which will be six years with me as the lead pastor. And we got great elders. I love these guys. And we're talking about, could I take, you know, October, and this is, this is hard for me to talk about, guys. I'm sorry. I just... It's weird. October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, and so I've been talking with our elders about me taking a short Sabbath, meaning one month will be a short Sabbath where I'm just not preaching that month. And I'm focusing on other things and I'm reading and I'm studying and trying to reconnect with, you know, what, what, what would be the best future for this church, the preaching schedule? What book of the Bible do we need to go through next? What are some changes that need to be made? Even studying this this week, it helped me coming in here this morning and seeing sometimes we get so rushed and so hurried with even the start of the service. I want to talk to all of our leadership and make it, I want, I want our, our church and our teams to thrive here. I want to make sure everyone's well rested. Everyone's getting a break. Nobody feels overcommitted or that they're having to substitute every single week for somebody that doesn't show up. I just really ruthlessly want to protect that culture here. So that we can focus on worshiping God and on serving one another and on existing for the outsiders. Does that make sense? But our elders have been really gracious to me. Um, a final illustration here. I know I got a lot of illustrations today, but I think it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this, this Sabbath law. I'm fascinated by longevity. People that live to be really, really old. I've always been fascinated by that. And I, I've been watching a documentary about it, and then I came across uh, something called the Longevity Project. And this guy has devoted his life to traveling to places where people live to be 100 years old. That's pretty cool, huh? There's a name for that. You know what it's called? I always forget it. What's it called, Sarah? Centurion? No, that's a Roman soldier. <laughs> Centennial or something like that. People that live to be, people that live to be 100 years old... Um, this guy goes around and, study, and, and he's found these zones in the world, and he's called them blue zones, where people live to be an extraordinarily old age, but they're healthy. It's like this guy's 104, and he doesn't know what his name is anymore. No, these people are like riding bikes. Some of them still work. It's pretty crazy. And so they interview this guy. His name's Jason Prowl, and he's the director of the longevity. He's traveled to nine countries, three continents, centurions. Wait centenarians. Yeah, there we are. That's sorry. It's hard to pronounce. Um, and he wanted to know what does it take to live past 100 and whether it's possible to reach that age while maintaining peak health. And so he studied these people's lifestyles. And it was just interesting. You may, you may think you know what, what he's going to discover here. Mostly it was genetics, he said. Sorry. <laughs> if, if, if everyone in your family tracing back to great, great, great granny died when they were 40, 
I'm sorry, guys. God's sovereign and he could extend your life, but you're probably looking at 40-ish, you know, get your house in order kind of thing, okay? <laughs> I mean, eat kale and juice and all that, but eh. Okay. That they ask him, you traveled to various locations around the world and interviewed uh, centenarians. What did they have in common? Here's what he said. There's a number of things they all shared. I think what really stuck, stuck out to me in a blanket statement is that they all lived a simple life. Can I ask you a question? Do you live a simple life? Do you live a simple life? Because you can, and God wants you to, and he will help you get back to living life that way. Your life does not have to be complex and complicated. I'm not talking about conflicts that arise from brokenness and sin. That's, that happens, and God's got grace for that too. But sometimes we pile on the complications. They all lived a simple life. They moved with the rhythms of nature, were in close connection with their community, each other and their family. They did not get overwhelmed with life and what was going on around them. Meaning was a huge part of their life. Now look, I'm not saying this is Christian guys, okay? But there are some, some echoes of what the Bible tells us in here. Meaning was a huge part of their life. Meaning in everyday things, not big things. <laughs> like they could probably go outside and watch a butterfly and be good. They didn't need to watch two hours of YouTube videos. <laughs> they had meaning all around them. Meaning was a choice. Their food was simple. Their movement and exercise patterns were simple. Everything around their whole life was simple. The more modernized we get, it seems the more complexity we add to our life. I think our challenge now in the Western world is to decomplexify, to reduce the clutter in our minds our spaces, and our foods. Everything that we're doing, we have to strip away to some degree. I don't know, that helped me. <laughs> Not exactly a Christian message, but I, I think there's echoes and traces of it of what God wants for us. A simple life where we observe God and we set time out and every day to get alone with God and every week set aside time to worship with God. Here's just a few points of application. And then I'm going to pray. If Jesus is calling us to a place of rest that will yield a, a fruitful life, here's some things you can consider. Have a fixed time of solitude and silence every day, meaning you intentionally remove yourself from noise and people every day. And hey, sometimes I do that in my car in a parking lot, and I turn the radio off because that's the best I can do. Have a weekly Sabbath day where you can be and not do. Be reminded that you are a human being, not a human doing. That day will spill over into the rest of your week. Simple living. Simple living. Get rid of the clutter. You know one of the things I'm going to do when this Sabbath happens? I'm going to, I'm going to be giving a lot of stuff away from my garage, man, so get ready. <laughs> that sounds silly, but every time I walk into my garage, it takes a half a year off my life. I can't even move in there. <laughs> you think, is that Christian to like... I don't know, I'm going to be worshiping God when I clean that thing and listen to some Christian music. Y'all can come over and help me if you want to. Anyway, uh, get rid of clutter. Minimalism. Jesus was the ultimate minimalist. <laughs> Birds have nests. Foxes have dens. The Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. Man, Jesus trusted God, didn't he? Only keep the stuff that increases your quality of living and that adds value and quality to your time. Look for practical ways to slow down your pace. 
And I'm going to end with this, Matthew 11. Guys, the things that are happening outside of us and with our physical body, I think is sometimes a reflection of what's going on spiritually within us. We are wearied and we are emptied. You ever just feel hollow and empty and guilty? And you're tired. You don't even feel like you can go on. And Jesus has a message for you in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. You who labor, those of you who are working and who are exhausted and who are tired, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. You know, rest is like an analogy for heaven and for salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, the whole chapter talks about the people of God. Joshua didn't give them rest. Moses didn't give them rest. I swore in my wrath, they'll not enter my rest. But there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And, and Jesus is the Lord, our Sabbath. And he comes on the scene. He says, come to me, everyone who's, who's heavy burdened and who's weary and exhausted. And I'll give you rest for your souls. That's the most important rest you can give. Your identity is on being a child of the King, forgiven, cleansed, justified, declared blameless, repenting of your sins and clinging to him with all your worth. That's the true rest we need. And we can do that every Sabbath when we come together. We can do that. We can stop, cease, Sabbath, cease, stop. We can rest. We can start to reflect. We can remember. We can remember that we were once enslaved, just like God commanded them. You were once enslaved in Egypt, and I redeemed you. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember, I liberated you. I made you my child. That's what Sabbath is for. Just, re just reflect. Are you tired? Just think, think of the future. You can reflect on what heaven is going to be like. It, it, heaven, the renewed, restored planet is going to make Hawaii look like a slum. <laughs> I can't wait to lay on the beaches of the restored planet, man, <laughs> with grace life. You'll be like, what was that word? What do we call that again? Cancer. Oh, yeah, that's gone. Never hear that word again. This is the planet the way it was intended to be, and God has given it to us because of all the stuff we did for him, right? No, pure grace. Pure grace. Come to me, all you who labor. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths that we can celebrate today. Help us to Sabbath well. Not to be meticulous about traditions and complexities and how far we can travel and what we can watch or not watch or leisure or recreation. Lord, help us to ask you, what would a Sabbath in our life and our family that's helpful to us that's pleasing to you and that serves the function for which you gave it to us, how would that, what would that look like? You made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. We were not made for that day. That day was made for us. That law was made for us. That principle was made to serve us. We were the pinnacle of your creation, Lord. You care about us. You want us rested. You want us healthy. You want us happy and flourishing and worshiping you and showing the world what you're like. You're not a God that rushes his people around. You love us and you care for us and you want us to have a simple, worshipful, restful life. And for our souls, Lord, I pray if anybody's here and they're exhausted and it's an exhaustion that goes deeper than the sweat from their job or their career, it's because they just feel guilty and empty, Lord. And they haven't known that true rest that you and you alone can offer. Will you please today meet with them? Even now, as we just take some time for this band to play a song of reflection, for the people here, if they have a prayer need, and our prayer team is going to be in the back. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I repeat that. We have a prayer team that's here for you.
If you want to just pray, if you're if you have some of those symptoms that we read about, you're in pain all the time, you're tired, you have no time for yourself, and you want this simple life that the Bible talks about and that Jesus demonstrated, and you want to pray about that, please go and join one of the members of our prayer team and ask them to pray with you and for you. Or your soul is weary and exhausted and you want help. You want to know how can I how can I stop and just let God help me pray with one of the members of our team. And then we're going to come back and share some announcements and we're going to be dismissed. Kyle. message was um, personally encouraging and really challenging, and I hope that um, you all experience the same. Um, just a few announcements for you to close out our service. Community groups have started, and I know many of you are um, 
have joined one, which is really exciting. Um, I've gotten a couple of pictures, um, which is really awesome uh, to see just the different community groups gathering together. Um, but we have five groups that you can join. Um, and just because we launched um, these past couple of weeks doesn't mean that it's too late. Um, if you're still interested in learning about them or joining, um, you can through our app or on the website. Um, Right there, gracelifeflorida.com, um, under Gather, you can find a community groups tab. Um, but there's two in Deland, one in Deltona, one in Orange City, and there's one online. Um, if you um, are needing to stay home and stay quarantined at this time, there is a group for you as well. And then the last Wednesday of this month, we have a fifth Wednesday, um, and Tommy talked a lot about um, or he mentioned rhythms um, in the message. And one of the rhythms we have is every fifth Wednesday, if, a, if there's five Wednesdays in the month, we'll have a prayer gathering as a whole um, congregation. Um, and we'll be meeting at the Roth home September 30th, this fifth Wednesday for prayer. Um, if you need that address, you can email me at contact at gracelifeflorida.com and I will get you that. Um, so just keep mark the calendar um, that we'll all be gathering in prayer um, in person. The last couple, I believe it might have been two for fifth Wednesday. We've been just doing um, via Zoom uh, meeting, but we'll be gathering in person, which is going to be really exciting um, to do so once again. So if you want to stand with me, we'll say our charge. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. With every breath, with every word I speak, with every step, with every heartbeat.